This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, July 9th, 2022. Episode 92, Helmbrecht Begins, or How to Become a Robber Knight. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We've been on our medieval true crime kick for a few episodes now, and today we're going to swap out one of those adjectives. Instead of true crime, we'll look at criminal activity as rendered in medieval fiction. Or at least, an event that has been fictionalized. Taken at face value, our text for today claims to be by an eyewitness reporting true events. Our text is the narrative poem Meyer Helmbrecht by an author who identifies himself at the end of the poem as Werner de Gartener, or Werner the Gardener. Precisely who this Werner is has been one of the big questions about this poem since it began receiving serious scholarly attention in the 19th century. The other main debate is over how much this poem should be considered to relate to true history. We'll come back to both of these questions later. And when I say later, I don't necessarily mean later in this episode. This poem is a little under 2,000 lines long, so we're going to be taking it in parts over the course of three episodes. Meyer Helmbrecht was written around the year 1250. It is a rhyming poem in rhyming couplets, and its language is Middle High German, a historical stage of High German as it was roughly between 1050 and 1350. Uh, and the testimony of a Quora thread indicates that Middle High German, which I do not read myself, is about as different from Modern German as Middle English is from Modern English, though apparently some Modern German dialects are closer to it than others. Also, I'll just mention, because it's something I misunderstood back when I started out in medieval studies, and this might help some of you out there to avoid making the same error I did, uh, you do have this distinction between High German and Low German. This distinction is not, as I thought when I first heard these terms, a distinction of quality, like when we talk about Low Latin. Rather, it refers to geography. Low German describes the language of the lower-lying plains areas of the north, and High German comes from the more mountainous regions to the south. And both have their own old, middle, and modern forms. Um, and what we call Standard German and teach as German in American classrooms, at least, is actually Standard High German. The traditional title of the poem, Meyer Helmbrecht, specifies a character by a vocational title and a personal name. Helmbrecht is the name. Meyer, M-E-I-E-R, derives from Latin uh, Major Domus, which we've also borrowed into English as Major Domo, and the Latin meaning is approximately the same as the English one. It's a household administrator or steward. Uh, from that sense, it extends to mean an estate manager or a farm manager. And in German, that sense broadens to just farmer. Though sometimes Meyer retains a bit of its majorness and indicates a village elder or alderman, uh, a sort of successful and important farmer. And indeed, that same usage shows up in English, in our word, mayor, which also ultimately derives from Latin major or mayor. Meyer, as a German surname, usually derives from a medieval or early modern ancestor who was either a farmer or a village authority, uh, though there is a different Meyer that derives from Hebrew, and there are a few other different Meyers out there as well. 
Um, in this poem, though, you can see the linkage between the two German senses. Meyer Helmbrecht is a peasant who operates his own farm and seems to hold a position of some status and esteem within his community. But his son, also named Helmbrecht, is not content with life as a peasant, even as a fairly well-off and respected peasant. He feels that he was born for a more glamorous station, and in today's selection, we'll see the dandyish young Helmbrecht trying to leave the farm to join the entourage of a local knight, in this case, a robber knight, against the increasingly urgent counsels of his father. So what exactly is a robber knight? And why would it be attractive to a young 13th century German youth, or Bavarian Austrian youth? Uh, we'll get into more details about the phenomenon of robber knights in our next episode, but for now, a basic definition starts with a person who is a knight, uh, someone who holds a knighthood, though the idea of robber knights often includes the men in the retinue of the said knight, which will be the case for young Helmbrecht. Uh, so our episode title really ought to be How to Become the Lieutenant of a Robber Knight. Anyway, you take a class of knights, usually throw in a little political and economic turmoil, and you might find them resorting to various quasi-legal strong-arm tactics to raise an income. Many cases involve charging exorbitant or extortionate tolls, uh, and another major practice was to basically start feuds, or at least claim the start of a feud, sometimes with not much advance notice, uh, and that would provide legal cover for raiding another landowner and confiscating their property, uh, particularly livestock. Many robber knights are essentially cattle rustlers who claim their chivalric status as a legal justification for their actions. And in the mid-13th century, when Meyer Helmbrecht is both set and was written, the Holy Roman Empire had fallen into the Great Interregnum, a period very much full of political and economic turmoil, with a collapse of centralized authority, leading to the rise of these warlord-like robber knights, or robber barons. It's the same thing, though that label, robber baron, seems to have fallen somewhat out of fashion in discussions of the Middle Ages, since it's become more strongly associated with 19th century industrial magnets, though they got that name through their resemblance to medieval robber knights. As I said, we'll get into the phenomenon of robber knights more in the next installment of Meyer Helmbrecht. The main thing to be aware of is Despite the language of pillaging and looting that young Helmbrecht will be using to describe his desired career, he's not actually visualizing a, quote, criminal life. He's basically just describing what soldiers and knights do. We tend to think of certain kinds of violence as inherently criminal or evil, but that was not the perception of violence in the Middle Ages, uh, to make a big generalization. Uh, the type of violence was less of a signifier of rightness or wrongness than what authority someone had to use violence. That said, there was a distinction, though not always a clear-cut one, between legally justified action and honorable action, and we will certainly get a clear message from Old Helmbrecht that the conduct of this current generation of knights is not honorable or virtuous, even if he doesn't outright condemn it as illegal or wicked. We'll come back to the question of honor uh, later, and when we get to the third installment of the story, we'll learn that there is a line that robber knight's retinues can cross where the veneer of knightly feud resolution is stripped away, and they do become actual outlaws. Uh, and hence, this will become a crime narrative and not just a legally sanctioned violence narrative. 
uh, though it does start out that way. All right, for now, though, let's talk a bit about hair and social class. Rather than kicking off this poem, uh, which is sometimes classed as an epic poem, with action, or even conflict, we start with a head of hair, and on that head, a fancy hat. The extended description of this hat or hood or coif and the imagery embroidered on it is a classical epic trope, like the description of the scenes on the shields of Achilles and Aeneas in the Iliad and the Aeneid. But neither Homer nor Virgil opened their epics with descriptions of their heroes' garb and gear and the fashionable curliness of their golden locks of hair. For a poem that's about a young man going off and taking up an exciting, violent lifestyle, the first third of it, which you'll hear today, spends an awful lot of time talking about fashion. But this actually serves to provide an important thematic bit of characterization. In young Helmbrecht's mind, you are whatever you appear to be on the surface. The clothes make the man. It's a very Jay Gatsby kind of philosophy, and it puts him into conflict with his father, who endorses a more traditional conception of the social hierarchy. For old Helmbrecht, you are what you were born into. And indeed, as you'll see, the father comes across as a bit more concerned about Helmbrecht's violation of the divinely ordained class structure than he is about the terrible deeds his son is excited to perform. I want to talk a little bit about that class structure and particularly the status of peasants in this part of the Holy Roman Empire in the 13th century. To do that discussion justice, we'd need another whole hour at least. Uh, so instead, we'll have to settle for the nutshell version. Basically, the key thing to have in your head as we get into this poem is that this moment is a kind of high point for peasant prosperity. Indeed, I'd almost rather use the word villager instead of peasant to shift the mental image a bit. Um, though they do still make their living through the hard manual labor of farming, something we'll hear young Helmbrecht complaining about quite specifically, they could become relatively wealthy. In fact, you have instances of impoverished knights and minor nobility marrying peasant girls for the dowry, because they'd get more money that way than marrying another impoverished noble. So banish from your mind the Monty Python and the Holy Grail image of filthy peasants crouching in fields of mud. These are farmers and artisans who are now seriously competing with the gentry for economic power. One way we know this, in fact, is from satirical literature like our text for today uh, and others. When we see satirists making fun of or criticizing peasants for trying to rise above their natural station— we know that this was perceived to be a real issue that resonated with audiences. We get a nice example of this problem of uppity peasants in a passage from Neithart von Reuntal, one of the most famous German poets of the early 13th century. He's from the generation before our text's author, Werner, and was a literary influence on him, which we don't just have to speculate about because he actually gets name-checked in today's selection. In one of his poems, Neidhart provides the following description. Here it is as translated by Edward McLaughlin and quoted in the introduction to the edition of Meyer Helmbrecht that I'll be reading from today by Claire Hayden Bell. Quote, Perhaps you would like to hear how the rustics are dressed. Their clothes are above their place. Small coats they wear and small cloaks. Red hoods, shoes with buckles, and black hose. They have on silk pouch bags, and in them they carry pieces of ginger to make themselves agreeable to the girls. They wear their hair long, a privilege of good birth. 
They put on gloves that come up to their elbows. One appears in a fustian jacket, green as grass. Another flaunts it in red. Another carries a sword, long as a hemp flail, wherever he goes. The knob of its hilt has a mirror, and he makes the girls look at themselves in. Poor, clumsy louts, how can the girls endure them? One of them tears his partner's veil. Another sticks his sword hilt through her gown as they are dancing, and more than once, enthusiastically dancing and excited by the music, their awkward feet tread on the girls' skirts and even drag them off. But they are more than clumsy. They have an offensive horseplay that is nothing less than insult. End quote. And this brings us back to hair. I read a fascinating article by the historian Robert Bartlett called Symbolic Meanings of Hair in the Middle Ages, which, again, we could spend an hour delving into um, and may well come back to sometime in the future. As Bartlett discusses, hairstyle and hair treatment serve as a marker of a number of cultural categories. Age, gender, ethnicity, as well as class, marital status, and special categories like being a priest or a penitent or one in mourning. As with many cultural symbols, there's no inherent meaning to any given hairstyle, but the idea of the categorical distinctions being marked by hair is surprisingly universal. Bartlett gives the example of medieval priest's hair. In the Western church, priests were expected to be clean-shaven, sometimes even tonsured, whereas in the Eastern church, priests were expected to be bearded. So two opposite practices in hair treatment signify the same special status. Uh, so you can't say that either clean-shavenness or beardedness is inherently related to interaction with the divine, but the use of an approach to shaving is shared as a signifier of priestliness. That said, Bartlett does point out that the symbolism isn't entirely arbitrary. Uh, one might reasonably interpret the difference between West and East as being tied to clean-shavenness indicating celibacy, as practiced in the West, and beardedness relating to married and sexually active clergy in the East. But in other instances, what serves as a marker does seem more arbitrary. Take hair length, for example. Broadly throughout the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, uh, with the fashions of the round heads and cavaliers as an example, uh, long hair on men was associated with the aristocracy and short hair with the clergy and the peasantry. But that's not always true, and you find tracks complaining about young nobles and knights wearing their hair in unseemly, effeminate, long and elaborate styles. Uh, we heard part of such a complaint from Ordric Vitalis in our episode 78 concerning the character of William Rufus and some scandalous shoes. Uh, the Bayou Tapestry famously portrays many of its Normans with a distinctive hairstyle in which the back of the head is shaved and the front allowed to grow, uh, kind of like an inverse mullet. So the significance of long hair depends on time, place, and culture, and is not a stable category. And of course, as with the illustrations of Normans and Anglo-Saxons, it can be an ethnic marker as well as a class one. Anyway, luckily, we know that long hair on men was a marker of aristocratic status in 13th century Germany, Austria, and Bavaria. Uh, and sorry for that geographical blur there, but which national categories apply to the location of this poem's action are not super clear-cut to me, uh, and I've seen different adjectives deployed by different scholars. So I hope those of you who care about the important distinctions between those labels will forgive me if I use the wrong adjective. 
Um, but in the region, in the time period, it was actually enshrined in law that long hair was not permitted to the lower estate. Bartlett quotes one of these sumptuary laws, quote, Peasants and their sons shall cut their hair to the ears, end quote. But the satirists offer us evidence that this law was not very strictly enforced, and peasants wearing their hair in imitation of the nobility and wearing the clothing styles and fabrics reserved by law for the nobility, this was a thing that was happening. It's what we see young Helmbrecht doing quite brazenly. And with that, I think we've got to move on into the poem itself. I'll be reading a translation by Claire Hayden Bell that retains the rhyming couplet structure of the original. Bell describes this verse as, quote, a form which impresses us today as trying and monotonous, our ears accustomed to an entirely different and freer flow of verse, end quote. He's writing in 1931 and in the middle of modernism, so we might be a bit more receptive to this kind of rhyme scheme. That said, uh, in my opinion, it does have a tendency to feel a bit Dr. Seuss-like at times. Anyway, here we begin Werner der Gartenere's Meyer Helmbrecht. One writes of what to him occurred, one tells what he has seen. A third of love alone sings his refrain, while still a fourth one writes of gain. A fifth one praises riches, gold. A sixth lauds courage, high and bold. Here I shall tell what happened me, that is, what my own eyes did see. I saw, and this is true, I swear, a peasant's son, a lad whose hair was curly and light blonde as well, his locks, which richly downward fell beyond his shoulders on each side, above within a hood were tied. This hood was richly worked, I ween, that no one ever yet has seen so many birds on hood arrayed. Both doves and parrots were displayed in neat embroidery on the hood. Hear more at length what thereon stood. A peasant, Helmbrecht was his name, was father to a youth, the same concerning whom this tale is spun. Like father, so was named the son for Helmbrecht was the name of each. In simply short and homely speech, I now shall tell you what was found, what wondrous things were sewed around upon his hood or cap so neat. My tale shall be without deceit. I'm telling not from mere surmise. Behind, one saw a seam band rise. From back to front, the edging led across the middle of his head. This band was worked with birds all made as though just flown from out the shade of neighboring Spessart's woody lair. Upon a peasant's shock of hair set never better hood before than on his head young Helmbrecht wore. This bumpkin, you must further hear, had on the side towards his right ear, all sewed upon this selfsame hood, shall I now say what thereon stood? A picture of the siege of Troy, when daring Paris for his joy stole the king of Greece's wife. He loved her dearer than his life. One saw there, too, how Troy was won, and how Aeneas' fleet did run, escaping thence by ship to sea, and how the towers fell, finally, as well as many walls of stone. Alas, that any peasant's son 
should ever wear a hood of such a kind as makes one tell so much. Hear from me further, if you would, what elsewhere on this headpiece stood, filled out in silk, you may believe, the tale in no wise does deceive. Upon the left side of the hood, King Charlemagne and Roland stood, Turpin, with Oliver at hand, a staunch and battling warrior band. The wonders that their power and might wrought with the heathen were in sight. Provence, as well as distant Arles, were overcome by good King Carl. With wisdom and with virile hands, he conquered all the Spanish lands, whose people heathen were before. And would you hear how furthermore, this is the truth, like all the rest, the hood between its bands was dressed behind the head from ear to ear? One saw the sons of Helca here, who struggling valiantly and well, in battle by Ravenna fell, when Wittig grimly struck them down, that wanton blade of ill renown, them and young Dieter too of Bern. And you may further wish to learn what else this fop, this foolish lad, embroidered on his headpiece had. This fool of God, this silly lout, had on the front all round about, extending from his right ear round to where his other ear was found, I know from fact that this is right, now hear the rest about this sight. A border, wondrous to behold, of ladies gay, knights brave and bold, nor had there been forgotten there a group of lads and lasses fair. These all were in a dancing scene, and worked with silk of softest sheen. Between the ladies two and two, just as they still in dancing do, a knight stood holding each fair hand. And over at the other end, between each pair of lasses went a lad, hands clasped in merriment and fiddlers, too, were standing near. It now remains that you should hear how such a hood young Helmbrecht had, this foolish, wild, and wanton lad. And yet you have not heard me say whence had come the hood so gay. The needle of a pretty nun embroidered it, and she had run, turned by her beauty, from her cell. It happened to her, truth to tell, as to her kind quite frequently, such ones my eyes so often see, who, by their lower half misled, stand at last with shame-bowed head. Now Gotelint, Helmbrecht's sister, won the favor of this pretty nun by giving her a fine fat cow. Skilled with her hands, the latter now repaid them, as well as she could, made Helmbrecht both a suit and hood. When Gotelint gave the cow to her, hear what further did occur. The mother gave the nun to please so many eggs and so much cheese that while in convent hall she ate, she ne'er had been thus satiate with foods. So many eggs to crack and such fine cheeses without lack. The sister gave her brother more to honor him than's told before. A linen shirt of such fine weave one scarce a better could receive. The linen was so finely spun that seven weavers each had run away before the eighth man's skill the final weaving did fulfill. Suit cloth the mother gave him then, so wonderful a specimen that never had a tailor's shears cut out such goods in many years. Inside with fleece the cloth was lined, with skin of beast of such a kind as grazes on the grassy field, the whitest that the land could yield. The mother also gave her son a sword, a very handsome one, and doublet made of links of chain. For Helmbrecht, nothing was too vain. His every wish he tried to meet, and gave his outfit to complete, a dagger and a pouch. Behold, these decked a youth both wild and bold. Now when she thus had dressed her son, he said, Dear mother, I need one more thing to wear. It is a coat. If I should be without it, note how damaged and disgraced I'd be. 
It should be made so handsomely that when you see me in the same, your heart within you will exclaim that you are honored in your son, no matter where his path may run. Still laid away in folds, she had a handsome dress. It was too bad she had to part with it the while to clothe her son in proper style. She bought him cloth of blue so fair, not here indeed nor anywhere had any peasant theretofore possessed a coat worth two eggs more than Helmbrecht's. What I say to you is by my word of faith quite true. Now, he could teach him virtue's ways, and also how to gain high praise, who had advised him such a coat. Upon its back the eye could note, from belt to neck in straight array, how button close to button lay. These brightly gleamed like reddest gold, and if you further would be told details about this coat, I'll try to meet your wish and amplify. Down from the collar, neath the chin, a row of buttons did begin that reached the girdle buckles quite. These buttons were of silver white. Such labor rarely one bestows upon one's coat or other clothes. No peasant wore such costly work twixt Hohenstein and Haldenberg. And see now how this pleases you. There were three crystal buttons too, and not too small nor yet too big. He held these with his coat so trig across his chest, the stupid lout. The bosom was all round about, bestrewn with buttons, fine and bright, that cast afar their dazzling light, yellow, blue, green, black, brown, red, and white, to order as he'd said. These gleamed with such a brilliant sheen, that at each dance where he was seen, most loving glances on him fell, from maidens and from wives as well. They all were charmed his form to see. Now, I confess, quite honestly, that while this youth was standing there, I'd win scant favor from the fair. Where sleeve was on to bodice bound, the seam which ran its edge around was spangled gay with many a bell, one heard their tinkle very well. Whenever in the dance he sprang, he charmed the girls with their cling-clang. Sir Nightheart, if he still did live, him God would ample talent give, in better verse this he could tell than I can, that I know quite well. Ere Helmbrecht's mother had bought his clothes, his leather leggings and his hose, many a hen and egg was gone. When at last the proud young son was thus decked out in gorgeous show, My will impels me forth to go, he said. Dear father, your support I need, that I may go to court. My mother gifts has given me, my sister too, so generously, that, as I live to my last day, I'll bear them in my heart alway." This gave the father great unrest. His son, in irony, he addressed. To match your clothes I'll give a steed, and one that runs with swiftest speed, one that can take a hedge or pit. At court you will have need of it, one that can run the longest course. How gladly shall I buy the horse, if one is cheaply to be had. Meanwhile, I beg, beloved lad, give up the trip you plan to court. The courtier's life is of a sort too hard for those, and not well fit, who have not always followed it. Dear son, you drive the steer for me, or take the plow while I drive. We shall thus get all our acres plowed, and you will near your grave and shroud with fullest honor, as I do. I flatter me that this is true, for I've been upright, faithful, just, and never have betrayed a trust. What's more, I pay in full each year my proper tenth without a rear, and thus far I have lived my life 
free from envy, free from strife. Said he, Dear father mine, I pray you drop this subject right away. It cannot now be otherwise. I'm bound to see with my own eyes what knightly life is like, and know that now no longer I shall go your sacks are riding on my neck, nor shall I longer at your beck shovel dung upon your cart. God's damnation blight my heart if I should drive your steers once more, or sow your oat seed as before. It ill becomes my dashing air, nor is it suited to my hair, my flowing blonde and curly tress, my well-conditioned handsome dress, my new-made coat, my hood so gay, its hawks and pigeons on display, embroidered by a lady's hand. I'll never help you plow your land. Stay here, dear son, and do not go, for peasant Ruprecht, as I know, will give you his daughter's hand. Ten cattle, too, I understand, and swine and sheep, both young and old. At court you'll hungry be and cold. Your bed will often be most hard. You'll win no favor nor regard. Now follow my admonishment. T'will bring you honor and content. For seldom does it come to pass that one can rise above one's class. Your station is behind the plow. You'll find, too, courtiers are now, wherever you direct your pace, you'll bring upon you but disgrace. I swear it, son. If you must test the truth of this, you'll be the jest of all born courtiers, as you'll see. Control yourself and follow me. Father, once I have a steed, you will find that I can lead court life with just as fine an air as those who've always lived right there. Whoever once my headpiece sees, with all its silk embroideries, will take his oath upon first sight that I who wear it am a knight. Although I've driven many a cow, marked many a furrow with the plow, once I'm dressed so smart and fine in all these handsome clothes of mine that sister gave me yesterday, and mother too, in such array, I tell you most assuredly, unlike my former self I'll be, what though so many times before I've threshed upon the threshing floor and with the flail have laid around or driven stakes into the ground, once I've clad both foot and limb and made them look so neat and trim in hose and cordovan-made shoes, no one can tell, e'en though he choose. No one will think then to allege that I have ever built a hedge. If you will give me the mount, peasant Ruprecht need not count on me to take his girl to wife. No petticoat shall rule my life. He said, A moment silent stay, and hear, son, what I've got to say. Who follows good admonishment gains from it honor and content. The child who both in word and deed his father's counsel will not heed will reap at last but harm. His name will soon be overwhelmed with shame. Now, if you simply will not hear, but class yourself as friend and peer of courtier, noble-born and high, you'll meet with failure when you try, for this he'll only bear you hate. You should believe what I now state, that never will a peasant grieve at any harm you may receive, and if a knight, a genuine one, took all a peasant e'er had won, he'd fare much better, son, than you. You know how certainly that's true. For if you steal a peasant's food, dear son of mine, beloved and good, if once he gets you in his hand, your pledge and hostage understand for all who've robbed of him before. On you he'll settle each old score. Your pleas will fruitlessly be spent. 
He'll count himself God's instrument if he should slay you at your deed. My own dear son, believe and heed all that I say. Avoid all strife. Stay here and choose yourself a wife. Whatever, father, be my fate, I'll not yield now. It's far too late. Forth I must fare upon the stage. Now others as your sons engage, and let them sweat behind your plow. The cattle such as I drive now must bellowing before me flee. I'd not be here for you to see, except for lack of nag or steed. That I can't ride at whizzing speed along with others all on edge, go raiding through each peasant's hedge and drag him out by head of hair, that gives me deep regret, I swear. I'll not endure the pinch of need, if in three years I should indeed raise one poor colt, one cow as well, such gain would be a bagatelle. I'll go a-robbing every day, that I may gain sufficient prey, and ample victuals free of cost, and that my body from the frost in winter's kept, unless it be none buys my captured steers from me. Father, hasten now straightway, do not make the least delay, give to me at once the steed, and let me swiftly from you speed. I will not let the story lag. Some thirty yards of woolen shag, and, as the tale would have us know, this cloth of thirty folds or so was longest of all lengths of shag, he sold to buy his son the nag. Four finest cows, too, it appears, a yoke of oxen and three steers, four measures also of his grain, alas, lost goods for all his pain. For full ten pounds he bought the horse, and in that selfsame hour, of course, at three it would have scarce resold. The seven pounds were but lost gold. When now the sun thus ready stood, had donned his handsome clothes and hood, hear what the foolish youth then said. He proudly shook his hooded head, and in a vaunting boastful tone said, I could bite through hardest stone. I feel such bold and valiant mood. Hey, I could chew up iron for food. Let the Kaiser count it gain if I don't capture and enchain and pluck him to the very hide, our good and noble duke beside, perhaps a count or two as well. Cross fields I shall ride pell-mell, my course without the slightest fear, crisscross the world both far and near. Now let me pass from out your care to hurtle swiftly through the air. In my own fashion I will go, a Saxon father you must know you'd rear with greater ease than me. He said, You may then, son, be free. With your training, I am through. Henceforth, I wash my hands of you. My further counsel I must spare as to the way you curl your hair. However, guard your handsome hood with all its doves, lest someone rude should touch it without gentleness and with bad intent might mess your long and light blonde locks thereby. But if you really want to try without my guidance and my aid to get along, I'm sore afraid a staff will be your guide some day. Some child will lead you on your way. He said, O oh son, beloved young man, let me dissuade you from your plan. Live here on what I live on too, and on what your mother gives to you. Drink water, dearest son of mine, ere you with booty buy your wine. Our meal cake, even in Austria, son, is much enjoyed by everyone. Both wise and stupid relish it, for noblemen they deem it fit. Do you, dear child, eat of it too, 
before you go so far that you exchange stolen oxen when you're hungry for a paltry hen. Each weekday, Mother here can make the best of soups, and no mistake, fill up your maw with that. Will aid you better than to give in trade for someone's goose your stolen horse. If you will only take this course, you'll live in honor, son, like me, no matter where you chance to be. Son, mix a little bit of rye together with your oats, and try to be content with this good dish before you eat of stolen fish. Follow me, and you are wise. If not, betake you from my eyes. Though you win wealth and honor too, I shall not wish to share with you. And if you win disgrace and pain, alone bear these as well as gain. You drink your water, father mine, and I shall quench my thirst with wine. Enjoy your groats if you so wish, but I prefer a better dish of chicken boiled deliciously. It cannot be forbidden me, and I shall eat until I'm dead the finest whitest wheaten bread. The oats are proper food for you. The Roman law says, and it's true, a child will in his early days take on his sponsor's virtuous ways. A noble knight once sponsored me, and blessed may he ever be. Through him I am of noble kind, and have a proud and knightly mind. The father said, Believe me, son, who far more pleases me is one that follows only proper ways, does right and always constant stays, though he by birth be somewhat low, He'll please the world much better so than one of royal line or birth, devoid of virtue or of worth. A worthy man of low degree and a noble without honesty or morals, you must understand, should both these enter some strange land where no one knew them, you would see they take the man of low degree to be the noble of high birth, not him who chooses shame for worth. My son, if you would noble be, I counsel you most faithfully be noble then in what you do. Good conduct, this is always true, is crown of all true nobleness. That I am right, you must confess. The son said, Father, that is true. But then my hood, my long hair too, my handsome clothes all seem to say, you can't stay rooted here, away. So brilliantly my garments gleam, more fitting for a dance they seem than harrowing or plowing earth. Alas, that mother gave you birth, exclaimed the father to the son, because you leave the best undone and do the worst. My handsome youth, reply to this and speak the truth, if you have common sense and wit. Which has the better life of it? He whom all berate and curse, whose actions make the whole world worse, who lives from other people's woe and works against God's favor so? Which life now is the purer, son, his or again, the life of one from whom the whole world profit draws, who does not seem aggrieved because he struggles hard, both day and night, for others' gain to live aright. To God doth proper honor show, and who, wherever he may go, finds favor both with God and man. Dear son, now tell me if you can, but speak the truth, which of these two is the more pleasing man to you? Father mine, it is the man who harms no one, but rather can bring gain and pleasure to mankind. His is the better life, I find. And you would be that very one if you would follow me, dear son. Stay here at home and help me plow, and you will help the world enow. You'll profit then, both rich and poor, by such good work you may be sure. The wolf, indeed, the eagle too, all creatures will rejoice for you. 
all living things of sea and land called into life by God's command. Beloved son, stay by the plow, for with its gain it can endow with beauty many a dame. Tis found that many a king himself is crowned through gains our farming labors buy. And no one ever stood so high whose pride would not endure a fall if farming were not done at all. From your sermon, sire, I pray God grant to me release straightway. If by chance you had turned out a genuine preacher, I don't doubt but that your sermons would have made a grand success with some crusade. Now, what I wish to say, please hear. Though peasants do much work, I fear they eat up more than is their share. And now, however I may fare, I certainly will plow no more. If soiled and blackened hands I wore because I did the plowing here, then by the grace of God it's clear I should be shamed beyond all chance when I took the ladies' hands in dance. The father said, My son, demand, and be not vexed at my command, wherever you may wise men see, just what this dream I dreamed might be. You had two candles in your hand. These burned until far over land their rays shone clear and brightly beamed. The man of whom I last year dreamed, loved son, a dream of this same kind. I saw him this year walking blind. The son said, Father, very well. But if perchance my courage fell at such a tale, then certainly an errant coward I should be. This warning failed, like those before. The father said, And I dreamed more. One foot you walked on painfully. Your other leg, off at the knee, was resting on a wooden crutch. From out your coat there stuck some such a thing as splintered shoulder blade. That profit from this dream be made, ask what its hidden sense may be of all the wise men that you see. That means good luck, health free from care, of all rich joys a goodly share. He said, A further dream I dreamed, and shall I tell you how it seemed? It seemed to me you wished to fly, or woods and brush high in the sky. Somehow a wing was clipped off short. This put an end to all your sport. Does this dream also good foretell? Alas, hands, feet, and eyes as well. Father, all these your dreams foretell my happiness, it seems, said peasant Helmbrecht's youthful son. For servant, seek some other one. You'll now be left behind by me, no matter what your dreams may be. He said, These dreams, compared with one, are but a puff of wind, my son. Hear one dream more that came to me. I saw you standing on a tree. Above the grass, your feet, I swear, were near two fathoms in the air. Perched above your head so high, a raven sat, a crow nearby. Your hair was matted and unkempt. These two birds combed it as I dreamt. From right the crow would dart at it, from left the raven parted it. Alas, this dream that I did see. Alas, O oh son, alas, the tree, alas, the raven and the crow. I've ill succeeded, as I know in what I've brought you up to be, unless the dream has lied to me. By Christ and Father, though it seems you've dreamed all that there is of dreams, both of the good and evil too, I'll ne'er give up whate'er I do, the trip I long for, till my death. I feel its need with every breath. Dear Father, 
May God care for you, and care for dearest mother too. His kindness on your children rest, and may they be forever blessed. God keep us all within his care. With this, young Helmbrecht forth did fare, to father his farewell once said. Through the gate he quickly sped. If I related all his ways, then not within three livelong days, perhaps indeed not in a week, could I make end and cease to speak. So there goes young Helmbrecht off to seek his fortune. He presents us with this seeming contradiction, or at least tension. The young man in fine clothing, capering with the ladies, jingling in his dancing bells, who seeks to make a living pillaging and raiding, and just generally through a life of violence. No doubt the satirical structure of the poem plays that contrast up, but it is also an inherent feature of late medieval chivalry. We might expect that this will be the stock story of the beautiful, naive boy going off to seek adventure and getting brutalized by the men who live a real life of violence. Well, without giving away what's coming up, I'll just say that that's not the story we're going to get. Even though this poem was written about 100 years before the Black Death, uh, it has certain resonances with the vagrancy and labor control laws that we looked at last episode. Young Helmbrecht is not leaving home because of changes to the labor market, but he is responding to a change in his own perception of his status in society, or at least what that status could be. And our author, in constructing this satire on the social climbing peasant, shows some of the same generational conservatism as in King Edward III's statutes. This idea that you're better off if you keep your head down, stick to the old ways of doing things, be happy with your place in life, and carry on in the same line as literally your father and forefathers have done. We'll be exploring that more in part two. And we'll leave it there for now. I do have a riddle for us this episode. To go with our setting and this notion of family drama, here's a German riddle collected by 19th century writer David Fitzgerald. The father high, the mother broad, the son mad. What does this phrase describe? Who are the father, the mother, and the son? I'd say take a moment to think about it, but I honestly don't know that that would help all that much. Uh, this is not really a riddle whose answer you can deduce. Uh, this is more one of those riddles that uh, feels almost proverbial. So the answer is, the father high is heaven, the mother broad is earth, and the son mad is wind, which I suppose is a kind of product of the marriage of the heavens with the earth. And that mad wind might be a fitting image to wrap up with for those of us who live in tornado-prone areas here in the middle of the summer tornado season. And that brings this episode to its end. You can get more information about this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also reach me by email there. I'm Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or you can follow and interact with me on Twitter at MDT Podcast. 
And lastly, you can support the show through Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, for which you'll get access to bonus audio content, including our audiobook of Jordanus's Wonders of the East, uh, a nice bit of summer reading, and the occasional appendix to a regular episode, such as one for our previous episode, which takes a little trip back into our namesake text, Michael Lessie's Wisconsin Death Trip. I'd like to thank our most recent patrons who have joined in supporting the show. Janet, Minivan, Darren, Mickeyus Porcius, or Mischius Porcius, I'm not quite sure which. Uh, and lastly, G. Thank you all so much for your support. So watch out for tornadoes, and remember the lesson that old Helmbrecht learned the hard way. Your horse loses 70% of its value the moment you ride it off the lot. And thanks for listening. Look, let's rehearse the scene at the inn. Frida? This we can't go on. There's too much dust. It's taking the curl out of my naturally curly hair. <laughs> <laughs>